Hello, pod pals. Welcome to another episode of Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. I feel very lucky to have gotten the chance to speak with this week's guest. It definitely comes under the category of a silver lining to how we've been interacting lately. Louise is British but works in New York and is currently in Europe on a job, so there's no way I would have thought of setting this up probably in normal circumstances, and I'm so glad that I did. I should say my guest is Louise Ford, a film editor who has worked on some of the most original and startling and accomplished features of recent times. Uh, I don't think that's overstating it. They include Robert Eggers' The Witch and The Lighthouse, Corey Finley's Thoroughbreds and his recent release starring Hugh Jackman and Alison Janney, Bad Education, as well as Paul Dano's directorial debut, Wildlife, starring Kerry Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal. We talk about a myriad of topics, from Louise's pivot from journalism to film editing, how, in a roundabout way, she was inspired by 70s Hollywood editor Dee Dee Allen. We go deep into The Lighthouse, the Robert Eggers film she edited, uh, talking about performance and the layering of sounds to achieve such a deeply unsettling finale. Uh, we talk about Louise's approach to editing and what that process actually looks like, from reviewing takes to assembling and polishing it. Uh, what else? Mentorship, confidence, instinct, films... I, I just really adore this conversation. I sort of had uh, some knowledge about what editors are responsible for and capable of, but talking with Louise tipped me off uh, just how important an editor is, and I came away with a much better sense of how they do the brilliant and often magical work that they do. As always, I hope you get as much out of listening to this episode as I did putting it together. This is episode 61 of Best Girl Grip. I did an English literature degree in Manchester and after about a year of that I I wanted to do something more um you know career oriented even though I loved the English literature but uh, so I switched to a journalism degree in uh, London it was actually called media studies one of the first media studies degrees this would be in like 1990 so I came out of that as a sort of a trained journalist print journalist then I started off as a you know in journalism I worked I was on the sort of the, I mean, what we used to call it is the sub-editing right, desk. Yeah. I don't even know whether it exists anymore. <laughs> yeah, state yeah, of, uh, print uh, journalism. But um, basically, it's it, in a funny kind of way, it's a similar, it's a similar part of the pipeline as I am now in films, which is I don't generate the copy, but it's my job to mould it, write the headlines, all that stuff. And I did that um, for about 10 years, I think. And I was sort of, I... I I started off with a very kind of idealistic mindset. You know, I wanted to change the world, you know, the young, as everybody at that age should feel like that. Mm. And I think we're seeing that a lot now, which is great. But I started off, you know, local newspaper. Uh, I started off at, actually, my first job was at a communist daily newspaper <laughs> called The Morning Star. Been going since the 1930s. Anyway, I started off there, but I mean, I ended up doing all sorts of stuff, mostly actually in women's magazines. I did it. I did a bit at Q Magazine, which is just folded. I just yeah. Found yesterday. I mean, considering you're quite embedded in the world of journalism, having spent ten years in that field, at what point did you become aware that film editing existed and that maybe you wanted to start pursuing that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, because it's not something that you sort of think of. I mean, bear in mind my age. So I was. 
I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s and in film in England as well. <laughs> you don't grow up thinking, oh, I want to be, a, you know, working mm. movies. It's just something that's so far away, you know, Hollywood, all that stuff. It's just not an option, really. Uh, but I was always a massive consumer of movies. You know, I loved watching movies. And I think that um, I just got slowly disillusioned with my journalism job. I just got bored, basically. And I was sort of casting around, trying to think, you know, if there's something else that I could do. And my uh, my husband, who I, who I met what, in 95, I think, he was already working as a TV editor. He, <laughs> he sort of said to me, you should do this. And I'm like, that is so lame. I'm not going to just do something because you do it, you know. But anyway, you know, over the period of time when I was working in journalism, I would uh, go around to his edit room after I'd finished work because he would still be working. And uh, he'd show me stuff and I'd give him suggestions, you know, move this scene here and whatever. And he would always say to me, you know, you're really good at this. You should pursue it. And I resisted it for years because of that, basically. So I didn't want to it just anyway, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Then we came over to we went over to America in 2001 because Andy uh, got a job working on a, uh, an American co-production. And we ended up in New York. And uh, I just suddenly started meeting a lot of people that worked in the film industry, you know, in TV and film. And I. I realized that over there, it, it was a whole different ball game. You know, like in London, you know, working in film is such a, well, it was then, it may be different now, but still it's a lot smaller industry. And, you know, I always felt like unless you went to the right school or you were Ridley Scott's, you know, niece, <laughs> you, you, there's no jobs, you know, there's not enough jobs. But in America, in New York particularly, it was such a thriving independent documentary and narrative film scene that... Mm. I just started meeting lots of people that were in it and thinking, why can't I do it? It was a long process because in between times, I went back to work at Cosmopolitan magazine for a year as the deputy editor. And uh, just to, I needed to do some work again, having not worked for a bit, a little while, and just really try and figure out what I wanted to do in my life. And then it just got to the point where I, I was just like, I hate this job now. <laughs> the, thing, the thing against the job, it was yeah. just me. I was forced, I was like, right, screw it. I had a few grand savings. I immediately did a bunch of research about edit courses and I was like, I'll just try it. So I went to a place called the Edit Center, which is a, it, they do, they did like a six week training course. So you do a week learning all the keyboard st stuff. And then the big draw for me was that the five weeks after that, you're working on a live project. So it wouldn't be something, you're not just practicing on stuff that's already been edited. You know, you're mm. actually working on documentary or feature uh, in conjunction with the director. And also what they did, this is the reason why I took, I chose the edit center because there's various edit courses you can take, but this one in particular, they would have a lot of every week, they'd have three or four visiting editors, people who had either been through the course themselves, you know, mm. who, who were now working in the industry. So it was a very kind of job, for, you know, it's a very career focused course. It wasn't uh, so much, enough, you know, like a theoretical mm. thing. It was, And funnily enough, the first time I sat down at the keyboard, the first exercise we were given, I remember it was this scene. This was stock footage that they use on every course. But, you know, these cowboys coming into an office, into some sheriff's like office or whatever. And um, it was funny because I, as soon as I it just as soon as I started working with it, I, it just like hit me like a thunderbolt that this was everything 
that I love. You know, you're working with acting. I love acting. I love watching actors. You're working with, you know, it's the, it's the art, it's music, it's sound design, and it's all there on your, you know, at your fingertips for you to manipulate how you want to. And mm. that was it. I was, I was a goner. I just knew that. I, I wish I'd done it years before. Absolutely. And I'm wondering if you felt like that course kind of prepared you for how to get your job. You said it was quite career focused. So did you kind of know the next steps to take as a result of that, you know, how to get your foot in the door, basically? Yes, because like I said, they had all these um, working editors who would visit and they would show their films and then they would talk to us afterwards and we could ask them any questions about, you know, the same kind of questions you're asking me, basically. And, and, but also because I was older and because I'd already done one career, I think I was less shy than I would have been at 20, you know. So I just went up after every single, every person that, you know, came to talk to us. I immediately went up and got their contact details and, you know, emailed them. As soon as I finished the course, I emailed all of them and just said, I'm free and available to, you know, intern. And one guy got back to me, uh, a brilliant independent film editor called Michael Taylor, who edited The Farewell last year and uh, various other movies, but that's probably his best known one at this point. And I took me on as his intern. You know, it's it's that thing about as soon as you get your foot in the door, that's the hardest part. Yeah. After that, you just naturally meet people. And how long did you intern? Was it quite a quick succession in terms of kind of jobs and opportunities or were you kind of still having to sort of hustle? Well, I was very lucky. I mean, I have been very lucky, which, you know, also plays a part. But the film that he was editing, uh, he, he had, I think he'd, he'd done his course at the Edit Centre about five or six years before me. Maybe not that long, but a few years before me. So he had done, edited a bunch of in, you know, low-budget indie movies. But this particular film that he took me on was actually a HBO project. So it was kind of a big step up for him. But because of that, we were in this edit facility in New York called Post Factory. And Post Factory was the kind of, in those days, what we were talking about, 2007? You know, the Coen brothers edited there. Michel Gondry edited there. Ridley Scott was editing, um, uh, was it American Gangster there at the same time that I was interning on this film. Wow. And they had a very sort of collegiate feeling in the the actual place itself. It was run by a lovely guy who, um, anyway, the atmosphere was very, uh, like there was a communal kitchen mm-hmm. and dining table. So you could get, I got to talk to, you know, Sophia Coppola's, assistant and another brilliant filmmaker Tamara Jenkins yes yeah I love her yeah she's brilliant well she was editing Savages there at the same time that Michael was doing this um, HBO film so I went from being an intern on Michael's film to being an intern on Tamara's film because as soon as I found out who she was you know I was just like oh my god (laughs) I love that movie you know (laughs) I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, it wasn't like a cold, cynical, oh, I'm going to say that. It was just genuine enthusiasm. Yeah. And I found in this industry, any industry really, if you're genuinely enthusiastic and you know stuff, you're probably going to be okay. You know, you'll get on. It's all about, I try to be honest, you know. I couldn't, I, the networking thing, you know, every sort of goes, ooh, networking, ooh, and I do too. You know, I mm. can't, if it was a formal networking thing, I'd be useless, but mm. just, chatting away 
you know, that is networking, if you want to call it that. But for me, it's just having an interesting conversation with somebody while I'm making a cup of tea, you know. And and that feels to me like the best way actually to to figure out if you're going to get on with someone, it, particularly yeah. I imagine with editing and where you sort of have to have a similar language to know that you have the same maybe frame of reference or the same yeah, yeah likes same and tastes. It's like taste that. is so important. Um, and I'm wondering if you had any mentors besides the people that you were sort of interning for, or if they were your mentors that sort of gave you guidance and um, perhaps people whose careers you wanted to emulate. Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, my, I have to say my biggest mentors would be Michael Taylor because then he took me on after I interned with him. We got on great. We have similar taste, you know, both really into music and which is a big part of, you know, a lot of the films he edits. But uh, he took me on to be his assistant editor after that. So, and I assisted him on, I mean, that was my assistant apprenticeship, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I did three or four films with him. But honestly, my husband, Andy, you know, who had been editing for 15 years before I even started. I'll be honest with you, if we're talking about women in film, I hope it's not like this anymore. But I was of the generation, I grew up just thinking anything machines, technical, you know, scared of it. It would always be feel inferior because I didn't have the technical knowledge that, you know, perhaps some uh, guy who was really into that side of it would have and uh Andy to his credit anytime I would come back from work going I don't know how to do this how can I do this he would just be like why are you stressing out about it it's not important it's easy you just do this this and this and I'd go okay and he said what's more important is what's going on in here you know the storytelling mm. that's what you know they want from an editor and so he was brilliant at, um encouraging me and also making me understand what's important you know, not to get hung up on uh, the technical aspects of it. I often think that with them sort of job advertisements or because they list all the requirements and they're often quite technical and you you always hear that men think, oh, I'll just give it a shot and women go, oh, well, no, I'm not quite. Oh, God, I can give you a perfect example of that, actually. I mean, I'm still still a bit, uh, I'm not very good at pretending I know something I don't know. I, I would just say, I don't know that. I mean, this is a great example, actually. And when we were, so I was sort of being an apprentice, you know, assistant. And Andy, uh, he knew Avid inside out. He'd been doing it, you know. But funnily enough, a job he went for was for Final Cut. So he goes to the interview and they say, which he had never worked on. And they say to him in the interview, so you know Final Cut, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and then he went back, he got the job and then he spent the next month after the job mm. that he was finishing at home, teaching himself Final Cut, and, you know, and he did the job and it was all fine. Amazing. But me, I would never, ever, I wouldn't have the, I just wouldn't have the confidence to do that. That was the uh, preferred sort of edit system in, definitely in indie films, because it was a lot cheaper than using Avid. Right. So I don't ever cut Final Cut. The Witch was cut on Final Cut 7. And then uh, the next job after that was the, my first kind of studio film, mini studio, and it was Sony. It was the Don't Breathe, which they cut in LA. And I was on the talking to the post supervisor and I wanted to do it in Final Cut 7. And they're like, there's no assistants in LA who do Final Cut. You know, you're going to have to do it in Avid. And I was saying to the post supervisor, well, I've never even cut a short in Avid. I I just don't think I can do it. And he paused for a second and he goes, you know, first week of dailies. It's a short film. You'll learn. <laughs> oh, 
exactly. I mean, I guess, you know, people like that that push you a little bit, they're mentors too, you know. So I, you know, I took the job. I mean, I did take, I did do a week's intensive avid course before I went out there. Just, <laughs> I just yeah. <laughs> mentally, if nothing else. But, you know, and then it worked out fine, you know. In terms of, how could I put it, my imaginary <laughs> mentor, <laughs> Uh, that would be Dee Dee Allen, who was a Hollywood mm-hmm. film editor. In the, I mean, she's de- uh, she's dead now. But, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, I would watch these films like, you know, Serpico, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, you know. And you, for whatever reason, they really affected me. You know, they get, when you watch those films, you really care about the characters. You're absorbed in the story 100%. And they're brilliant movies. And I remember you know, doing some research, thinking, well, what is it about them? Why? It's not the same director. It's not the same writer. It's not even the same actor all the time. And it was Dee Dee Allen. It's the same editor, you know. And that was the moment when a sort of little light went off in my head to, to make me realize that editing can have, like, such a big influence, particularly on performance, I think, but pacing as well. I mean, we know this, but, yeah, you know, it, as somebody who was just sort of getting into editing when I sort of made this massive realization it was it, it was very inspiring you know it's interesting that you mentioned that period because I've just finished reading um Peter Biskin's Raging Bulls oh, yeah. um, which book. is just filled with kind of all these stories of so, there's so many women editors in fact like it felt like obviously very few um, women directors but it felt like they really kind of had a stake um in the ground in terms of editing oh famous story about Jaws uh who is it uh what Verna uh Vanna Fields yeah yes well I mean she made that movie yeah you know because the mechanical shark was a disaster and it was her idea to say what if we don't show the shark you know until right at the end exactly and I mean similar with kind of Marsha and George Lucas she was so instrumental to sort of Star Wars and all of that and yeah I guess now's a good time to ask actually what your first job in editing was and, and how you made that leap. Did you just kind of someone push you towards it or you felt ready um, after assisting um, Michael to sort of say, okay, now I need to edit my first feature on my own? Well, Michael was a huge support. I mean, he was always encouraging. Uh, when I was his assistant, he would give me scenes to cut, you know, and give me brilliant feedback, um, encouraging feedback. So, you know, I'd been cutting little bits and the whole, and you know, as I sort of mentioned before, when I started being an editor, I was already in my mid thirties before I even did that course. So I was very uh, well aware that I didn't have time to spend fifteen years being an assistant, you know, and, and do that. I, I just I was quite focused on I need to et cut. I want to cut. That's what I want to do. You know, I you know assisting work is necessary and I think it's a necessary step to being an editor but it it wasn't I had to get to editing as soon as possible so the whole time I was assisting Michael I was looking for short films to cut and I was cutting them in my spare time Mm. you know student films my uh the place the the training place the edit center where I you know learned how to edit they would have a notice board, an electronic notice board, where students would uh, ask for editors, you know. So I got a few films through that. That's when I first met Robert Eggers, actually, during that period, because I was assisting Michael on a film, and uh, one of his friends was a uh, production assistant. So every morning I would get the dailies from her, and she was producing Robert's short film, uh, his version of The Telltale Heart, and she said to me one morning, you know, would you 
want to edit this? And I was like, yeah, show me the script. And when I read the script, I was just like, you know, my mind was blown because mm. it was so, so original. Anyway, I'm, we can get on to that later. But well, I had been doing shorts, you know, just looking for work, just constantly looking for opportunities. And there was a female film director called Cynthia uh, Fridette who had just done the uh, the master's film program at Columbia. And she was shooting a feature, which was called Half the Perfect World. And really nice, uh, kind of love story. But um, she took me on as an assistant. They were going to have an edit. They were going to, you know, a lot of times in very low budget short um, indie films, they might not get the editor on until after they finish shooting, basically, right. just for because it's, you know, it's expensive. So I assisted on that film. In other words, when the, while they were shooting, I prepped all the dailies and, you know, got the project ready for whoever would be the editor eventually coming on. And then it got to the end of the shooting. And I uh, approached Cynthia because I'd gone really well with her. And I was like, you know, can I have a go at editing it? Nice. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's how I edited my first feature. But yeah. for barely any money. I mean, and, and, and over... It, 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 she was in a position of, you know, she she was a working mom and she could only work on it like three days a week. So we did that thing where we worked on it three days a week for like, you know, a couple of years, basically. And mm. in between, I would be getting paid assistant gigs, you know, being able to fit it around uh, doing that. So that's how that happened. The confidence thing. I don't know whether it's because I was a bit older when I started, therefore just naturally a little bit more confident in my choices mm. or whether it's just because I've always been a bit of a bossy so-and-so <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I don't know I, but also actually thinking about it you know as I said in journalism my job was you know molding other people's work already so I'd kind of developed a sort of medium's different but it's a very similar job you know and write you know I was used to you know talking to writers being pissed off because I'd changed their copy and I'd give them a good reason why. And then they'd go, okay. So I was sort of used to making those kind of decisions. And plus, you know, in digital editing, nonlinear editing, it's not like you're cutting film, right? On mm. an old Mediola or whatever. It's, it's completely non-destructive. So I just always kind of have this feeling of just make, just do it. Just make the decision, make the edit, do it. If it doesn't work, great, we just do something else, <laughs> you know. You can, or there's nothing that can't be un, undone. You know, you you kind of learn what works and what doesn't. So, you know, but, you know, to a certain extent, you do have to have part of your character has to be uh, decisive and confident mm. in your choices, in your vision, you know. I'm wondering at what point, yeah, I mean, you mentioned there that sometimes with indie films, you kind of come on board at the end of a project. Is that kind of the major the majority of films work like that, or sometimes you come on yeah. earlier? And if yeah. so, when you're reading a script, what is it that kind of influences your decision as to whether or not you want to work on that project? No, the norm is that the editor is on for the for the shoot because yeah. for a very important reason, uh, which is while you're every day they're shooting, every day you're cutting the scenes that they've shot. If you see something that you need for a scene, they can pick it up the next day. Yeah naps you know whereas if you start editing after they finish shooting and you're talking about a reshoot or a pickup shoot and like nobody wants to do that you know because it's expensive because then you have to get the whole together again so it's a you know it's it makes sense from a producing point of view to have your editor on board from the beginning what was the second question oh reading a script 
Yeah. How do you decide that it's a project? Because it's, you know, it's quite a big chunk of time um, that you're spending on a project. Yeah. So presumably yeah. you have to be pretty invested in that story to want to be a part of it. So how, how do you decide that? Absolutely. I mean, yes, because you're giving up a big wedge of your life. <laughs> but more than that, you know, it's very hard to get through an edit if you're not into the thing that you're doing because mm. just psychologically and emotionally you're investing so much of yourself in it. It doesn't actually matter how much you're being paid. It's just soul destroying trying to, you know, just you can't keep the energy up. Mm. So the script is, is it really? I mean, well, the script and the director, of course, but the first, you know, my agent will send me scripts and um, it's really easy to tell because if it's a really good script, I'll just read it all the way through immediately. <laughs> And I'll be like, you know, it's like a good book. You're turning and turning the page because you want to know what's happening next. Uh, and, and, you know, a bad script, you, you, you can get 20. I can tell after 20 pages, really. Mm. Because, you know, for whatever reason, it just doesn't have the magic. It doesn't hook you in. It, the characters are, are two-dimensional or the dialogue's hackneyed or it's, a, it's an instinctive thing. But I think that, it's something that we are all, I don't think that's a special skill, particularly. I think that all human beings have the, you know, you, you know yourself watching any film or TV, you know, the, if, you, if your mind starts wandering, it's not good, you know, it's not yeah. doing it for you. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually, yeah, I shouldn't say it's not good. I should just say it's not doing it for you. I mean, there was a period of time when I was getting a bunch of horror scripts. Funnily enough, horror scripts, it, the horror scripts that I was getting were way better than the, you know, straight scripts, if you want to call right. it that. Conventional, what, what would you call it? Contemporary drama, let's call it that. Yeah, because they're sort of also, the horror sort of has an inbuilt, or mo you know, most horror has some kind of inbuilt tension <laughs> from the beginning. I didn't want to get typecast, which is why I, you know, didn't just do exclusively horror. Was that after Don't Breathe? Did you kind of feel like, yeah, you, you yeah. pigeonholed as a genre editor? Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And well, we'll come on to that because I kind of want to talk a bit about how you edit for different genres. But let, let's stick with this thread. And I guess the next the next point would be, what are your initial conversations with the director looking like? You know, do you talk about style? Then how are you pitching yourself? You're saying, you know, this is maybe how I envision it. You know, talk me through that a little bit. Well, first of all, I would never say that's how I envision it this way because I feel like that's the director's job. Right. <laughs> I would, you know, I just try to be honest. Uh, I mean, when I, it's it's always a bit weird the first time, especially now because a lot of it, I don't mean now in COVID times, I just mean now, now that we have the technology like Skype, for example, mm. a lot of these first meetings happen on Skype, which I'm not a fan of, I, I think that just because you, you know, you can have a great meeting on Skype and then you meet the person in real life and you don't get, mm. you know, there's something about meeting somebody in person mm. that you up in five minutes, whether you could get on with this person or not. Leaving that aside, when I meet with the director for the first time, it's just a conversation. You know, they're, they're trying to figure out whether they like you, whether they can be shut in a room with you for, you know, <laughs> four or five months uh, without you driving them nuts and like, you know, vice versa, me too, you know, and it comes down to whether, you know, you just have a rapport or not, you know, I try not to overthink it, to be honest with you. I know that there are some editors that do a, you know, a hell of a lot of research and sort of prepare a lot for the, 
interviews. I mean, not that I don't prepare at all. I do, you know, obviously I read the script and I think about the script and I think about what kind of film it would be, but I try not to overthink it. It feels like wasted energy <laughs> in a way. <laughs> I mean, it just comes down to um, sh- shared aesthetics, you know, shared taste. When I met uh, Robert Eggers for the first time, I think it, you know, we laugh about it because it was a disastrous interview because I was very nervous. Because <laughs> it was the first time I'd ever gone on an interview, oh, you know, with a director. This was yeah. back in the, talking about the short film, you know, in 2007. Mm. But despite that, you know, he figured out that we shared a sort of an interesting, very similar, weird stuff, obscure Victorian illustrators and <laughs> similar kind of films that we liked. So there's that. And then with Corey Finley, who did Thorough, who directed Thoroughbreds and Bad Education, we bonded over David Lynch, actually. He's a massive David Lynch fan. And I, we, again, just shooting the breeze, just talking, you know, he sort of asked me what film kind of blew your mind. And I remembered going, you know, the thing that I always remember is going to see Blue Velvet when it first came out, when I was like 18 or something. You know, way before I was in, involved in working in film, but just being completely blown away and sitting in the theatre afterwards and just like in shock, just like, whoa, you can do that with film. You know, I hadn't seen anything like it before. I didn't grow up in like a very arty household. Other directors I've worked with, it's just, you know, are they a nice person? If, you go, if I meet somebody for a coffee and they're shitty to the waiter, I don't want to, you know, why I... That's not somebody I want to work with. And it seems like quite a uniquely intense relationship. I think when you said there, like, do I want to be shut in a room with this person? It is, I don't know, I just got a very like visual sense of what that relationship is like. Um, it is, it is intense, yeah. And I'm wondering, you said there that, that you, you, you try not to overthink that kind of initial sort of bonding process, I guess. Is that, yeah. is that the approach that you take to editing the film as well? Or is that more structured and planned out? You know, perhaps talk me through how, what you're, process looks like from first assembly to final cut that's a really good question um yes I'm very instinctive I think I mean which is not to say that I don't have a routine you know if I I mean if you want to talk about that you know it it, obviously it changes during the process of the edit while they're shooting I come in in the morning my assistant will be either you know, we'll still be sort of organising clip or all the footage from the previous day into scene bins for me. While he or she's doing that, I will be, uh, usually there's some kind of online dailies I can be watching. I'll be making notes on um, the takes. And then as soon as my scene bins are ready and I can start working in the Avid, I, you know, choose which scene I'm going to cut. I mean, obviously they shoot out a sequence, as you know, Mm. So I just, the first priority while they're shooting is to get things cut as soon as possible so that you can just have a basic outline of the scene. Having said that, I watch every take. I watch them backwards. You know, so if we've got like eight takes, the first take I'll watch is take eight because, you know, it's just common sense that the director will move on to the next setup when they're happy with the take that they have. So right. You know, and I also have the script supervisor's notes to refer to, which will note um, <clears throat> what they call circle takes, which are takes where the director has sort of said, that's a good one, you know. So I watch them backwards and I start cutting the scene based on my instinctive feelings about 
what's before I start sorry I should sort of backpedal a little bit there and just say before I start cutting any particular scene the mm. first thing I do again is read the scene through you know and think try to figure out what is the point in that scene what 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 do, what do I want to what do we want to achieve with that scene and um so I start watching the tapes and I'll start putting it together now it depends on the scene some scenes I will literally just start cutting like that and some scenes I might make a, uh, a string out in a sequence of, you know, selects, but it kind of depends on the, the scene. When it's done, I might show it to my assistant for notes, or I might just, you know, put it in a bin, put it away onto the next one, come in the next morning, sleep on it, come in the next morning. In fact, yeah, I should have mentioned this really in my daily thing while they're shooting. <clears throat> while I'm getting, you know, drinking my coffee, while my assistant's prepping, the scene bins for me if I finished uh, looking at all the dailies on the uh, you know the online dailies uh, system before I start in on a new scene I will go and review the scenes that I cut the day before just watch them through and see if there's any little adjustments I can make or you know a lot of times you come back to things and you instantly see what something that you can do to improve it you basically have usually about two weeks after they finish shooting the editor will usually have two weeks to finish putting the assembly together, maybe drop a bit of music in or maybe not, depending on what the director, how the director likes to work. Some directors like to just see it dry. Some directors like to have music in it. So you have a couple of weeks to sort of finesse and then the director comes in and you show them the assembly and then they have a nervous break there. <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> you take for a drink and you put your arm around them and you tell them it's all going to be all right. <laughs> Is that often the hardest Basically. part, the step from first assembly to sort of them doing the finessing? Because it seems to me the, the, the initial assembly might be, I don't know how to put this, but just sort of the, the, the nuts and bolts and you kind of, you're, you're ordering and you're structuring. And then it's the finessing where you really start to get maybe the, the style and, and the tone of the movie. Is that is that correct? So basically the way that you saw, the way that I view a first assembly and the way that you should really view a first assembly is it's like a first draft of a script. You know, it's, you, it should, you should obviously get a feel for the movie, but it's only the starting point, really, as far as mm. the finished movie goes, as far as the edit goes, anyway. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm editing the first assembly, I'm, I'm not injecting too much of my own, you know, like I wouldn't, I, I, would, I would put it together exactly as it is in the script. In other words, I wouldn't be making sort of decisions about taking scenes out or moving scenes around. I think it's very important for the director to see everything in the, you know, as it was written. And I will have my own ideas, you know, obviously it's impossible not to, you know, I'll watch the assembly down and think to myself, oh, well, obviously those scenes have to go. And obviously this scene's going to be here, but I'm not going to say any of that at that stage. I just keep those notes to myself and let the director watch it. It's their decision when it comes to, you know, how they want their film to be, how they what they want to end up with. My job is primarily to support their vision, you know, and hopefully if the stars are aligned, our visions align and we mm. have, you know, we work together, we can watch, in the, watch the assembly down and both have the same thought, okay, that scene has to go. And then you just sort of work through, through it that way. When it comes to performance, you know, this is something that, you know, editors probably 
it, people don't really understand how much of an influence editors have on an actor's performance, I think. Mm. I'm pretty sure actors know it. <laughs> <laughs> because all sorts of things go on in the edit in terms of you might have an actor giving a very long you know, monologue. When I'm watching the takes down, there'll be one take where he or she does it absolutely flawlessly in terms of visually, like the camera's good, everything's in focus, the acting is right, but they might fluff a line here or there. So -hmm. then I would then go into another take and replace the dialogue on that one line. So what looks like one take without any edits in it actually has a bunch of audio edits in it that nobody knows about. So it's almost like stitching it together, like making, yeah, yeah. as you say, seamless kind of taking all the composite parts of the shoot and making them make sense in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think people know that, that know that that happens visually Mm. sometimes, you know, especially with visual effects these days being such a big part of it. But, you know, a good example would be in The Witch. There's a scene in The Witch at the beginning when the two little kids, Jonas and Mercy, uh, the two twins, standing either side of the mom in the uh, meeting house at the beginning. And it's a very symmetrical shot, fortunately. You've just, you just see the two kids are either side of her skirt sort of thing, facing you full up, front on. Well, there wasn't a single take of that where one or the other of them <laughs> was not, you know, picking their nose or... <laughs> um, messing about or not in, you know, not concentrating, you know, mm-hmm. which, I, I would have a take where Mercy was absolutely brilliant all the way through. Meanwhile, Jonah is, you know, tugging on his mom's skirt. <laughs> or something. So we comped that down the middle, you know, we found mm. the good take of Jonah and the good take of Mercy. Somebody watching that would never mm. know. I mean, perhaps people in the film industry would know this, you know, and the same with the goats. I mean, don't get me started on the goat, but <laughs> there's a lot of those kind of shots where you're putting pieces together from different takes, mm. but in the audio, you know, especially with Robert Eggers' work, it looks like, you know, there's a lot of one-shot stuff. But, you know, they people watching it wouldn't realise that there's millions of audio, you know, a lot of audio takes involved in that one shot. I mean, I will say that um, I do think it's a really important, you know, moulding performance is a hugely important part of an editor's job. And if I'm any good at all, I think it's because I'm good at choosing performance. There's... There's one scene in The Witch where Robert didn't change any performances. He trusts me at this point, mm. you know, know what's good. There's a couple of scenes in The Lighthouse where, you know, the conversation scenes between uh, Pattins- uh, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe over the, you know, there's a few scenes where they're having a conversation over a dinner table. And I'm pretty sure one of those, we just went with my choices all the way through. The other two, no. you know, we would swap out different performances for different parts of the conversation. And in that film, a lot of it was to do with cutting down the dialogue, actually. Believe it or not, there is, however wordy it is now, there it was twice as wordy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering what it is, because obviously it's a very different kind of ball game to to see a performance that has been knitted together as an audience member and it's sort of coherent and it has a through line. And when you're presented with options, you know, actors are experimenting, maybe they're going weirder, going harder, whatever it is they kind of do to adjust their performances on set. What is it you're looking for as an editor that says that fits, you know, with the story that fits with the character? Is that something you can kind of 
distill or explain or again is it this sort of abstract instinct well I think that ultimately when you're watching a take if it rings true you know when something rings true or not Mm. right you know you just in you sort of internally feel that something feels intrinsically you know has integrity feels right now so that so then I would always go with a take that does that well when I'm watching it you know you sort of get chills when something's really good you know you just get chills you know that when I like when I'm assembling while they're shooting for example I just go with what I feel is the best performance you know I'm thinking about the bigger picture I'm thinking about the macro edit in other words how to uh, mold the you know emotional and the pace the emotional journey and the pacing of the movie across the whole you know hour and a half film that's always sort of in the back of my mind you know different editors have different different approaches I I like to go with the strongest performance but when I'm cutting scene by scene Mm. you know this is a good example of how things change between assembly and sort of final film for example because when I'm cutting a scene you know out of sequence while they're shooting it so I don't know exactly what's gone before or what's coming straight after I mean I know in the script but I haven't seen what we've got from the shoot yet so in that one scene I'll just cut the strongest version of that scene within the parameters of what we want that scene to do in terms of the whole movie. Uh, and then when you watch the assembly down, you know, that's when you see, I mean, that's why you need a couple of weeks after you've finished shooting to tweak it before mm. even the director sees it, because you might see instantly there's this scene where he's r- super angry, but it just doesn't fit in the emotional uh, arc of where it is in the story. Perhaps you should be upset than angry. So then I would go back and look at the, you know, the takes that gave me that. And that's sort of an ongoing process throughout the whole edit is sort of, you know, juggling those things. I mean, to be honest with you, using the lighthouse as an example, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson were both so good. And it, it was very hard to, they had few takes where I just thought, well, no, that's rubbish. You know, that's <laughs> no, they're not in it. You know, you, you yeah. can tell when an actor mentally isn't in it, isn't in mm. the scene or you know, maybe got tired or or whatever, or just lost their concentration, you know, for a few minutes. And you can sort of see the light go out in their in their eyes, weirdly. But um, it, there wasn't much of that because they're both such good actors, you know, very different styles. But yeah, they, they, they were great. You know, when you're sort of coming up as an editor, a lot of the films that you are cutting shorts and, you know, indie movies, let's say, a lot of the job is trying to cut around things perhaps you've got an actor whose performance isn't that great you're in trouble when that's a main it's a lead actor or something and so a lot you know a lot of it is problem solving which is you know it's a really good discipline you know so how am I going to cut this scene if there's three actors and one of them is dreadful that's a good exercise actually because it makes you think it enforces you to be inventive so it's all necessary and it's all good but I'm very fortunate now to sort of be in the you know, the realms of just working with pretty much really good actors. And it's so freeing because then you're freed. If you're not worrying about stuff like that, then you can worry about the the stuff you should be worrying about, which is storytelling and pacing. I'd love to talk about those two things, storytelling and pacing, in in terms of the different genres that you've worked on. With obviously something like The Witch and Don't Breathe being a bit more surreal and horror-esque and then something very 
straight and somber like wildlife which I, I adored does your process change um when you're tackling different genres talk me through the kind of differences in your experience no <laughs> sure my process really is all about serving the story telling the story and so whatever I'm mostly focused on performance I mean, obviously the camera's important, but I would never discount a take just because it momentarily went out of focus, for example, if mm. performance was just far and away the best performance. So it's all about performance and storytelling. And really, whether you're telling a horror story, in some respects, wildlife is a horror story. <laughs> you know, this, this family, dis, you know, sort of disintegrating before your eyes and before the eyes of uh, Joe, the, the, their son, is pretty horrible i mean i think you know the thing about something like the witch or don't breathe even with those stories though you have to sort of be guided by the the characters the characters you're watching on screen and the stories that they're telling and it's and it's just about being true to that okay let me put it this way i don't have it front of mind when i'm cutting something this is a horror film yeah this is a you know, straight drama. All I care about is telling the story and the performances. Mm. Having said that, there is obvious differences in terms of, it's more to do actually with music and sound effects, the actual picture editing. Because with a horror movie, you, you, you know, generally there would be a lot more music and you're using the music to enhance the, the sort of the tension in the scenes. Personally, I feel like less is more when it comes to film music. You know, I don't, I kind of don't want to be distracted by it when I'm watching a movie. By the same token, you need it sometimes to uh, add to the atmosphere. I mean, The Witch is full of music and actually The Lighthouse is too, but it's a very particular kind of soundtrack to this, these, those films. It's, you know, it's adding to the horror, I guess. I mean, personally, I like to do it dry, which is to say without any music. So right. my, my first assembly will always be without any music at all, because if you can make it work without music, music's only going to then enhance what you've already got. It's already working, right? Mm. If you're at the point where you need music to make something work, you're in trouble, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like coming back to the idea that the script is going to give you that kind of, is the genesis of everything. It's sort of, it has to be there in the meat of it as opposed to coming afterwards, I guess. 100%, definitely. And I'm wondering perhaps what your relationship to feedback is like. Is that something you've had to learn to take and then also when to fight for edits? You know, you, you said early on, sometimes you explain to writers why you've made the cut that you have. Is that something that you've had to sort of finesse, you know, how, how to tell a director that... Yeah. <laughs> yes. I struggle with that because I'm not very good at... I've no, And I'm not saying this as a, as a boast, but I'm really not very good. <laughs> lying and but I and I feel like it's a failure in me just as that's just my makeup is I'm not very good at lying I'm not very good at I'm not the most diplomatic person I'm can be a bit too forceful so naturally and and what I've learned you know over the years is sometimes it's better just to say nothing (laughs) (laughs) tread carefully because you are, you know, whether you like it or not, we're personally, we're all personally involved in it and no, nobody more so than the director, right? Mm. Uh, I would, I mean, you know, it's not really an issue with the, because often, because, you know, the directors that I really love working 
with and get on with they you know we we're on the same team you know that's how I like to to view it one that we're trying to and they understand that if I get a bit um uh forceful mm-hmm. about an opinion they know me well enough to know that it's not an ego thing it's a, just a passion thing at least I hope they do I think they do I know they do I do I do <laughs> but, <laughs> but I have had to you know that's a skill you have to learn you sort of learn it when you're assisting actually mm. that by watching other people do it yeah watching other people and just also knowing that you know as an assistant you're yes you're in the room while the director and the editor and the producer are having a discussion about something but nobody wants to hear from you Mm -hmm. (laughs) you just take it all in and um I was very lucky with working with Tamara and Brian Cates was the editor of Savages they let me sit in on all their meetings it was amazing, actually. And I learned so much from just watching how, you know, how Brian navigated the politics of it and Michael Taylor. And I'm wondering what your definition of success is. How do you know when you've done a good job? When I, when people like it, you know, when people respond to it, mm. that's the best, that's the best feeling in the world, you know, going to see the witch or the lighthouse or thoroughbreds or bad yeah well actually I couldn't see bad education in theatres but (laughs) (laughs) when I go and see a fit like first of all you go to if you if you're lucky enough to get into a film festival you see it with a film festival crowd and they're always Mm. very enthusiastic which is great but the real test is you know if a film gets released into the theatres and then you go and watch it with a paying audience for the first time and it's it's very gratifying watching people jump in their seats all at the same time or explain, you know. <laughs> I love that. I remember a very early screening of The Witch and the bit where um, Kate Dickey is suckling the raven. You remember that scene? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're in, we're oh, <laughs> yeah, right. So we're in a little screen, you know, note screening. And uh, that image came up and somebody shouted out really loudly holy shit (laughs) (laughs) and I I was like yes (laughs) nailed it (laughs) I mean not that I did much with that that was just you know that was Kate Dickey (laughs) on the credit (laughs) but no I I actually get off on other people you know enjoying it you know of course it's nice when the critics like something and that we've been very lucky with the critics box office of course is important but personally for me it's uh, other people really enjoying it yeah I don't know it just takes you back to being a kid and when you watch movies and when you watch something that had a really big effect on you you know I still think about these films that I saw on tv when I was a kid they they go in there you're having an effect on somebody's life maybe mm. I'm overstating it I don't know but I think so no I, I think so. it's true and it comes back to sort of what you were mentioning with Corey Finley and you kind of both remember Blue Velvet and you're sort of I don't know steering people's relationships because if they have that emotional moment that then can help influence a, a relationship down the line you sort of I, I don't think you're overstating it is what I'm trying to say <laughs> and do you have a proudest moment as an editor you know a film or or even just a scene that you you think of as something that you you really executed very well. An actual edit. Mm, that's a good question. It's funny when you were first asking the question, "What was your proudest moment?" I was about to say playing uh, the when the lighthouse premiered at Cannes. That was massive, you know, for me. I was just like, "Wow, I can't <laughs> believe I'm here at Cannes." You know, a film that I edited is playing at Cannes. It was like crazy. In terms of edit, oh, that's a more difficult question. I mean, the final scene of 
well, not the actually not the final scene, but the penultimate scene of the lighthouse when Robert Pattinson puts his hand into the light. He has he does this amazing performance. I mean, he went there, you know, he really sort of went to the edge of madness, or at least he he acted like he did. <laughs> but when he starts screaming and all that stuff. So it's not really a picture edit, but it was a sound edit. It was the layering of the music and the sound that uh, there, um, which I'm quite proud of. I mean, I didn't finish. I didn't do the finishing on that, obviously, because I'm not the sound editor or the sound mixer. That was um, a brilliant sound mixer called Damien Volpe. I laid the groundwork for that. In other words, the build up of, I mean, I think we had like 40 audio tracks in that where it was like there was a bit of music and then we layered in the sound of a rocket ship taking off Uh and we layered in some drones and it was just a very complex and complicated layering of sounds and the bit when he puts his hand into the actual light and you start hearing this like a a, it's a noise and and then you realize and then it sort of it syncs up with what his mouth's doing you realize it's coming out of his mouth. It's a very Lynchian, actually, since we talked about David Lynch. But, you know, all these drones and sort of weird, like white noise, really loud, white, noisy type sounds. When I hit on the idea of making it sync up with his mouth opening and closing, I was really chuffed with that. And I think that worked really well. Oh, Bad Education. Mm. Bad Education. Have you seen it yet? I have. I managed to see it at LFF, so which oh, is well really great because I saw it in a cinema. Oh, I, I was there for that. That's Where cool. you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I loved yeah. it. Great. I'm so happy. I mean, because I was very fortunate to have The Lighthouse and Bad Education both playing at London mm. Film. So I made, I made the journey over. Anyway, so there's a scene. <laughs> I mean, isn't Hugh Jackman a revelation in that movie? Really, yeah, hugely. Especially I, I sort of felt like I knew I, he had it in him, but off the back of, you know, things like The Greatest Showman, to sort of see him pivot into this much more sinister kind of yeah. calculating uh, type of character was a real was delicious <laughs> yeah exactly yeah really good casting and he he just I mean when we first got when we got the dailies for you know his stuff on that I was blown I was just blown mm. away I mean I knew he was good but I didn't realize that he had he had that in him anyway but there's a great scene <laughs> do you remember this there's two scenes actually in fact there's three scenes <laughs> that I'm very very proud of and they're this it's the scene when Pam gets fired you know and she's sitting in that um, office and all the board come in and sort of crowd around her. Yes, yeah, that's Alison Janney's character, right? Yeah, yeah, Alison Janney. And that didn't, that barely changed her hair from the assembly. Mm. Um, her performance in that was so amazing. It, 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 I mean, this is like, it's a good example actually of what, how the performance tells you how to edit. Her performance, I mean, it, editing that scene was so easy because she was giving me so much and, you know, I knew exactly when to cut away and when to come back to her and when to go close to her. It was just all there, you know, and uh, I'm very proud of that scene because it barely changed at all. The other two scenes are the one with the, the one between Hugh and, uh, oh God, Annalie, Annalie Ashford, who is playing uh, Alison Janney's... Is it a niece or something like that? Niece, yeah. Yeah, yeah she's, um, oh, she's spectacular in that as well. I know, and she said, I mean, I just enjoyed editing that scene so much because her performance is hilarious, you know. She sort of, the way she bites her lip and the way she sort of looks down and then looks up again and uh, amazing. And the way, even the way that she sort of arranges her hair as she walks into the room. 
behind it's just fantastic that was really good and also Hugh in that is delicious I mean <laughs> and then the other scene with the course with the the uh, accountant when he's found out that they've got these two that <laughs> yeah charged for two seats on Concord side by side (laughs) anyway he's asking him who this other seat is for who's Kyle he says and (laughs) again both of them though both those actors I mean the great thing about bed education is all the supporting cast were absolutely brilliant Mm. you know as much as the lead actors in that Mm. the young the the girl that plays the young reporter I thought was a real standout as well oh yeah um Geraldine Geraldine, thank you. That's Geraldine, amazing. yeah, she's amazing. Viswanathan, that was really yeah. It must cool. be fun to edit an ensemble, you know, particular as a counterpoint to sort of the lighthouse, where it's two very intense yeah. performances as a back and forth to then sort of interlay very like many different layered performances. That must present a kind of a different challenge. Oh, completely different. I mean, you know, they're very different filmmakers and they're very different mm. movies, but they both they both scratch a different itch with me. I love both being in both of those worlds the sort of the dark humour and the, uh, uh, of Corey Finley's work. And then just, well, I mean, I suppose Eggers is dark humour. <laughs> it's just a different kind of dark <laughs> But, I mean, and the thing that both those um, directors have in common, actually, is they take they both take their work very seriously, but neither of them take themselves particularly mm. serious, which is a brilliant combination because they know exactly what they want and they're very uh, articulate and able to you know communicate it at the same time we we have so much fun working you know because we're just having a laugh I'm wondering on a sort of maybe not a sour note but just a, a different moving away from how fun it can be is there something that you consider to be the hardest part of your job what what do you find that to be the hardest part is sometimes as an editor you can find yourself in the middle between the producers and the director sometimes mm. depending on the project and that's always very difficult if the director wants one thing and the producers you know want to do something else so it's 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 a case of just being very diplomatic and trying to keep everybody happy because um, you're protecting the sort of the director's vision or the artistry and perhaps sometimes the producer might be leaning into something more i don't know a commercial I don't like to use that word but you know what I mean that's yeah 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 you said yeah what you said there actually there is a really hard part of an editor's job and that is you know because of the nature of the industry or or just the nature of the just the nature of filmmaking sometimes you know you get to a a stage in the edit where the they the producers perhaps aren't happy with it Mm -hmm. And then what happens is, and it's very, very common, is that you might get replaced with another editor because they're not going to replace the director, obviously, because it's the director's project. Mm. So, you know, sometimes the editor can be the fall guy, if you like, for why it wasn't working unfairly in 99.9% of cases. Um, You know, sometimes it's just, you know, no editor could make something work. So that can be tough. I mean, it's tough to be replaced. It's also tough to be asked to replace somebody else. You know, I don't like doing that. Yeah, that's so true. I have been asked in the past and uh, I sort of shy away from it. I'm happy to give notes. You know, I'll always give notes if somebody wants notes, some ideas. Mm. Um, But um, yeah, I haven't actually done that yet. I don't know if I will. 
is that because it's quite a close-knit community do you sort of feel that loyalty to other editors because yeah. you, you know you're all going through that kind of yeah absolutely hardship? yeah I mean that is the nice thing about the editing community actually it's very uh, friendly it seems to be very supportive and you know I meet up with a bunch of editors in New York every so often Nick Huey you know who cut little women and various other uh, Michael Taylor I see all the time and we're always you know sort of, you know like any industry you swap war stories and <laughs> Uh, but you're supporting each other, you know, everybody. Because here's the thing, you're not really, this is how I see it anyway. I don't feel like I'm in competition necessarily with another editor because everybody's unique, you know. Nobody would bring to a project what I would bring to a project. And likewise, you know, I couldn't bring to a project what Michael Taylor would bring to a project or, you know, another editor. It's it's not like, you, you know, you're competing to be the best or whatever you do it's just not about that I don't know I just don't see it that way Mm. I feel like what you you know your unique selling point if you want to call it that is you and nobody else can be you and it's probably healthier for that as well yeah yeah I'm wondering if you have any advice for you know future editors coming into the industry or you know perhaps given your path into it something that you'd wish that you'd learn earlier well Actually, funnily enough, just that, what I just said, which is Mm. know yourself. Was it Shakespeare? Know thyself, right? (laughs) Know what you like, know what you're into, know what floats your boat and pursue that. If you're you're really into sports, why do you want to be a film editor? You know, Mm. go and work in in TV in, in... in sports or, or work in sports documentary or I don't know, you know, whatever. I mean, that's maybe a bad example. What I mean is just, as you mentioned earlier, it's a hard, stressful job and, you know, it asks a lot of you sort of creatively, emotionally, psychologically. So just be into what you're doing. When I did that edit class back in the day, uh, the guy that uh, ran it came into the class one day and made us all sit in a circle and he went around and asked everybody that was doing this edit class, you know, what do you want to do? And so it went around and some people were like, I'm really into, uh, you know, cutting trailers. I'm really into TV drama. I'm really into documentary. And then he came to me and I said, immediately, I want to cut feature films, scripted features. And he looked at me and said, why, why would you want to do that? Because that's just being a craftsperson. If you're editing documentary, then you're being an artist. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, he was being, you know, he was he was being provocative, obviously, but uh, I mean, and in a sense, I understand what he's saying. You know, if you're if you're editing documentary, you have you know you're much more in a director type position, right? Because mm. you're building scenes, you're actually building the scenes out of you know verite footage, or you're building sequences with talking heads, or you're you know you're actually molding the story far more. There isn't a script, right? You're writing the script as you're editing it. But for me. I, right from the very beginning, I was completely single-minded. Who was it? Ken Russell, I think. Brilliant British film director Ken Russell once said, I'm not into reality. There's too much of it about. And that's been my motto. You know, I want to be taken on a fantasy journey when I sit down to watch a movie. I want to be taken away from reality. You know, mm. I want to go on an adventure. So they're the kind, therefore, they're the kind of films that I want to work on. And I know that. And that's what I'm going to pursue. You know, having done one job, basically, having done one job when I was a journalist, working on a product that I didn't care about, you mm. know, a magazine, for example. Now that 
I, now that I'm all about, I only want to work on stuff that I do really care about. A mistake that a lot of um, editors starting out make is that it's hard. It's hard to get your foot in the door. It's hard to get started, but you have to be very careful. I think I would stress this. You do not want to get, you don't want to go too far down one path that is not really where your interest lies, just because there's good paid work there. Mm. So there's good paid work in reality TV, for example. And if you're into that, I think that's brilliant. I mean, reality TV editing is some of the hardest editing there is to do because you are making drama out of, you know, you're manufacturing drama mm. a lot. Um, and I have ultimate respect. But if you're, if you're, you know, so you're doing, you're doing that. And if you actually, what you really want to do is scripted features. The longer you do the other thing, the harder it's going to be to get out because unfortunately that's just the way it works. If, uh, if you have a drama director looking for an editor and they've got like 10 people and nine of them have edited a feature before and you're coming from reality, let's, let's say a reality TV background, then you're probably not going to get an interview, you know, you know, make your choice early and stick to it if you can. I think that's good advice. <laughs> and finally, um, what is a film from a woman director? It can be an old release, short or feature length. Um, you think is an undervalued gem? Well, where do I start, Nicole? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a long list. <laughs> there's so many. I mean, as far as like one film that's an undiscovered gem, I mean, I hope you don't mind, but it's actually directed by a guy, but the, it was written by a woman. Do you know the film um, Rita Sue and Bob 2? I do, yes. Oh, you do? Maybe yeah. it's not an undiscovered gem then. Maybe it's no, a gem. I think I, I've just had a good film education. I'm lucky to know a lot of films. <laughs> well, that was a film that was made in 1987 by mm. the British director, who is himself, I think, under... Uh, well, not know, not well known enough. I mean, he should be as well known as Ken Loach and Mike Lee, really. Although he did die young, and he did a yeah. lot of a lot of his work was television. I think Scum was his most famous. Um, exactly, yeah, which gave Ray Winston his start. Peter Sue and Bob Two was written by Andrea Dunbar, and this is what blows me away. She was 15 years old when she wrote that. Wow. It was in a school, it was in a class at school, a creative writing class, and it was picked to be staged in a theatre production, like a scene of it or something. And they did that. And I think Alan Clark saw that and, you know, brought it down to London and uh, got her to write the script for the film. And I think Andrea Dunbar is, you know, I mean, her, her story is a tragic story, actually. There is a brilliant, in fact, perhaps this can be my undiscovered gem. Is it the Arbor? Yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I had to get in there. <laughs> I love that film. <laughs> I mean, that film, when I saw that, that blew me away because it was so inventive. You know, talk about documentary, but it, its form was so inventive. The mm. idea of casting actors to, vo- you know, to mime the voices of the actual people who were being interviewed was just mm. fantastic. I'd never seen anything like it before. And, you know, to learn her story about Andrea Dunbar as well, and, you know, tragic, uh, you know, sadly tragic story because she died young and she didn't really write much more but um yeah so I was gonna I was gonna be clever and pick those two (laughs) that that would make a great double bill yeah to watch them one after the other actually that would you know Rita Sue and Bob too has a a huge place in my heart it's set in 1980 it was done in 1987 but those two girls you know that's my generation I was that age oh maybe a couple years older but 
I went to school with girls like that. It was so familiar and so true, you know, and it's, it's got some brilliant comic moments in it. It's hilarious, but it's also at the same time very real and gritty and shocking and, you know, sad. Louise, this has been such a delight. I feel like I've learned so much about editing. Thank you so, so much for your time. That's so kind. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. There is a rich and wide-ranging archive should you wish to listen to more, and that can be found on iTunes, Spotify or Acast. If editing is your jam, there is an episode, I think, number four, with editor Maya Maffioli, which I recommend. Also, I'm going to plug the podcast's Instagram, because I haven't done that before. Um, I'm on the gram as at Best Girl Grip, should you wish to follow along. In the meantime, have a great week. Bye.